You're listening to an ACCA podcast. Hello, my name is Max Delaney. I'm Artistic Director and CEO at ACCA. And it's our pleasure to welcome you to ACCA's 2021 lecture series, Experimental Institutionalism, Contemporary Art and Curatorial Ecologies. This year, in response to the significant impacts on practice, movement, cultural production and community gathering as a result of the pandemic, and with a particular desire to maintain and strengthen international connections in the face of radical limitations on travel, movement and collaboration. We have recalibrated the format of our annual series from lectures to dialogues involving Australian and international colleagues. ACCA's 2021 series delves into an array of artistic exhibition, curatorial, editorial and institutional models with themes including exchange, education, employment, and the ecological, the series seeks to explore current and future ideas and models that are shaping contemporary art and curatorial practice in our radically changing times. The series seeks to explore alliances that can be drawn across borders, as well as the ways in which we might work and learn differently in response to the specificities of locality, place, culture and community. Drawing on the expertise of international scholars, curators, artists and colleagues, experimental institutionalism, contemporary art and curatorial ecologies touches on the changing roles of artists, curators, writers, educators and institutions as they intersect with wider global, cultural, economic, technological, environmental and political contexts. The series has been developed by ACCA's curatorial and public programs team. And I'd like to thank and acknowledge my colleagues, Miriam Kelly, Annika Christensen, and Bianca Winata Putri. For this first dialogue in the series, we're delighted to welcome and introduce Nikos Papasiadis and Laura Rakovic with a focus on exchange, reciprocity, and institutional collaboration. The format for this dialogue involves two independent presentations of approximately 20 minutes each, followed by a conversation between our two guests. Nikos's presentation is titled On the Museums of the Commons and reflects on his recent book, The Museums of the Commons, L'Internationale and the Crisis of Europe, published by Routledge in 2020, which explores modes of institutional collaboration, conviviality, hospitality and partnership and engagement with constituents and local communities in a time of resurgent neo-nationalism, economic precarity and climate emergency. Laura's presentation is titled On Interconnection, Culture and Care and reflects on ideas of care, the opportunity to make radical social change in our present moment and how we might use cultural spaces as sites of civic life and social transformation. Laura's talk is also informed by her forthcoming book Culture Strike, Art and Museums in an Age of Protest, now at the printers and to be released by Verso in 2021. Before introducing our speakers, I would like to acknowledge the Bunwurrung and the Wurundjeri of the Kulin Nations as sovereign custodians of the land on which Aka is located, who have cared for country and culture for millennia. And we extend our respect to elders past, present and emerging. It is now my great pleasure to introduce Professor Nikos Papasiadis, who is Director of the Research Unit in Public Cultures and Professor at the School of Culture and Communication 
at the University of Melbourne, alongside an additional role as visiting professor in the School of Art, Design and Media at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. Nikos's publications include Modernity as an Exile in 1993, Dialogues in the Diaspora in 98, The Turbulence of Migration in 2000, Spatial Aesthetics, Art, Place and the Everyday, 2006, Cosmopolitanism and Culture, 2012, Ambient Perspectives, 2014, and most recently on Art and Friendship, 2020, and the aforementioned The Museums of the Commons, also 2020. Nikos's work has been translated into over a dozen languages, and he's a frequent contributor to major catalogues and exhibitions, such as the Biennales of Sydney, Liverpool, Istanbul, Guangzhou, Taipei, Lyon, Thessaloniki, and Documenta 13. It is equally a pleasure to welcome the eminent New York-based writer and curator, Laura Rakovich, who most recently served as interim director of the Leslie Lohman Museum of Art, and was previously director of the Queen's Museum from 2015 to 2018. Laura has also held previous posts at Creative Time, Dear Beacon, the Solomon Guggenheim Museum and the Public Art Fund. Laura was recently a Rockefeller Foundation Fellow at the Bellagio Center and was awarded the inaugural Emily H. Tremaine Journalism Fellowship for Curators at Hyperallergic. She lectures widely internationally and in 2019-2020 co-curated a seminar series titled Freedom of Speech, a Curriculum for Studies into Darkness at the New School's Vera List Centre for Art and Politics, from which she is co-editing an anthology of writings on the subject. She is also the author of At the Lightning Field 2017 and co-editor of Assuming Boycott, Resistance, Agency and Cultural Production, also 2017. So Nikos and Laura, um, welcome and thank you both for joining us. Um, it's a great honour to have your involvement and to inaugurate this new series of dialogues in this first instance with your reflections on exchange, reciprocity and institutional collaboration. Thank you very much, Max, and it is indeed a great honour to be in your company and alongside my much esteemed colleague, Laura. It's a great pleasure to be with ACCA once again. And like you, I'm also speaking from the Bunurong land of St Kilda East, otherwise known as St Kilda East. And it is my honour to extend my um, respects to the Indigenous owners and custodians of this land who have welcomed us here in the spirit of exchange and collaboration that we're here to talk about. My angle on this topic, which is, I think, a very pressing and urgent one, is to focus on two other concepts which are interconnected with exchange and collaboration. That is cosmopolitanism and hospitality which have been conjoined since ancient times and have a deep question that they bring to us in this time of restricted mobility. Because these two principles of hospitality and cosmopolitanism open up our sense of belonging to the world and at the same time make us think about the conditions with which we receive others into our place. And that connection of being open to the world and willing to receive others into your world is a profound one in this particular context. I also want to think about how institutions, not just individuals, have to have a, have a role to play in this, in this conjunction. Because it's conventional to think about these issues of hospitality and cosmopolitanism in terms of individual responsibility of care towards others, 
or curiosity for yourself that you have to others. So it's both an ethical obligation on the individual and an aesthetic possibility for belonging and, and engaging with the world at large. But it's also, I would argue, an institutional reality. And let me underline the importance of this institutional reality in the context of neoliberalism, the decline of the welfare state, the context of the decolonial, etc., etc. The importance of developing new categories and concepts and perspectives in this rapidly changing world. And I underline this interconnections between the institutional realities with abstract philosophical ideals and personal ethical obligations, because for all too often, these terms have been put in a context whereby we see them being articulated in a context of denial and disavowal. Our dependency on the cosmopolitan is often based on the reality of institutions which are rooted in the national. So we disavow out that dependency on the national in order to invoke our interest and willingness to be exploring the cosmopolitan. However, at the same time, the national in its full ideology is often embedded in cosmopolitan values as well. It too has a tendency to disavow in its own dependency on values which are wider and, and more deeper than the national itself. So we must rethink this collaboration, this, this interdependency between what is national and cosmopolitan, what is based in institutional realities and what requires us an, a capacity to engage with abstract philosophical and, and ethical ideals, as well as aesthetic possibilities. So let's keep that wider understanding of the interdependency between ideals and realities, institutions and individuals in the back of our minds and at the forefront of this discussion. Now, the concept of collaboration also is at the crux, I would argue, of a period of radical transformation. It has been very, very important concept in terms of how we've been rethinking the, the practices of art, rethinking the practice of art to go beyond the idea of an artist as the sole generator of ideas, as the so-called fulcrum from which artistic genius is generated from. Collaboration has highlighted the way in which all creative work in one way or another is a relationship with others. And similarly, it's made us think about how work is produced, not just outsourced so that each person does something in an instrumental way to contribute to a greater whole, but through this dynamic of collaboration, something is greater than the sum of its part. Now, these two ideas, debunking the idea of the artistic soul author of genius and this outsourcing and instrumentalization of production have been very important challenges towards thinking about the importance of collaboration in contemporary art. However, there's a third dimension that we now need to focus on, which comes to the focus of this very um, dialogue, which is the role of institutions. Are the institutions simply the hosts of these forms of collaborations or do institutions themselves need to practice collaboration across other contexts? so that we can start to think of collaboration occurring trans-institutionally. How do institutions collaborate with each other? 
And how do we systematize collaboration across the whole spectrum of the ecology of the arts? And it's in that context that I want us to rethink the idea of the commons, because the commons opens up the field, of course, of collaboration. It opens up the field of production and creation. But it also must open up to a zone, not just the commons in terms of the public space or the public sphere, which for good or for bad has had its strengths and weaknesses tested by a number of philosophers from Jürgen Habermas onwards, but also towards a new dimension that's been highlighted by Stefano Harney and Fred Moten, which is the concept of the undercommons. Because the commons often presupposes that participants know how to play the game. You enter into the debate of the public arena, fully aware of the rules of the game. Sometimes you may even have a coach on your side. You know the field, it's all familiar, you enter the zone. But there are many people for whom all those aspects of the commons are already alien. We are all familiar with the fact that certain ethnic groups, certain class positions, look at our institutions as intimidating, as exclusive, as forbidding places. For them, the, that field is not a place where the rules are with which they are familiar. They don't even see themselves as participants in that field. They operate in another context of aesthetic production. So we need to see how not just the precariat, but also what Moton and Hani talk about people of the undercommons, a different kind of agency is operating and how that needs to go beyond the discourse of the commons, as in civic participation, but also to include aspects of our society and peoples in our communities who are otherwise excluded from or not fully engaged with the rules of the game, just put it simply. I want to test these propositions now in relation to a, a, a development of a project which is now a decade in its making, uh, which is called Le Internationale, which Max has mentioned in my introduction. And this project has um, sought out to achieve many of the points that I've already identified in this introduction, which is the idea of how, an institution, how institutions can collaborate together. Because Le Internationale is the confederation of at first four, then six, and now seven European museums. It was formed by an initiative that was launched by a museum in Ljubljana in Slovenia, Komodena Art Gallery. It successfully raised um, funds from the European Union through collaboration with other institutions in Belgium and Netherlands and Vienna. Van Arby in, in the Netherlands, Mucha in Antwerp in Belgium and the Julius Koller Research Centre in Vienna. MACBAR also in Barcelona was part of the original introduction. It then expanded to include SALT in Istanbul and Reina Sofia in, in Madrid. And most recently, in War, the Institute of Contemporary Art of Warsaw has also joined the Confederation. So this Confederation included um, six, it now includes seven major uni institutions in, in Europe. 
And their participation in this confederation is very significant because they start from the principle that in order to be viable, sustainable, and to realize your ambitions to collaborate and to have a sense of the world, no institution can do it on their own. No institution, no matter how big it is, even the Rena Sophia, which is a monster in, in the words of their own director, is big enough to embrace the world, but not even big enough to embrace their own city. Because cities themselves have become so complex and so diverse that every institution struggles and buckles at the thought of having to sort of address the complexity that exists in their own locale. So how does one operate in this context? And then there's the further context of the decline of the welfare state system, which had previously provided funds to secure the autonomy of the arts. And here becomes a, a key term that we'll need to discuss more clearly and more robustly, which is the concept of the autonomy of the arts. And as we also know, the complete collapse of state socialism in Eastern Europe and other parts of the world. And in the demise of these systems or collapse, we've also seen the unbridled ascendancy of neoliberalism. And in one way that the solution to this challenge of viability and expansiveness that has emerged, one solution has been the franchise model that we've seen from the Guggenheim and others, where they've tried to set up satellite systems and, and thereby capture new sources of contribution and funds and, and generate new streams of income in order to make the museums competitive in this new culture of neoliberalism. Now, Lente Nationale, when they formed, were obviously not interested in pursuing that Guggenheim model or even the Tate model or even the um, Louvre model of satellite systems. They were skeptical of that. They had already, the directors had already witnessed two decades of artist collaborative models, exchange systems, new committee structures that had been set up in Western Europe and network groups like Cluster, etc., that had been formed in the Europe. So there was a prehistory, even before 2010, of intense transnational collaborations, either with independent groups, artist-led initiatives, or small groups that had formed committees and artist institutions. So they were in, inspired by that history and wanting to scale it up, ratchet it up to a higher level. So they set up the Le International and successfully raised funds in order to enable new forms of collaboration that could operate across the institutions. In my view, after spending quite a bit of time um, interviewing lots of the different members, not just the directors and curators, but also um, other people in, 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 this, in the staff, from archivists to, to education officers, and also some of the artists and members of the public that engage with these institutions, I came to the view that three key themes have, have sort of shaped the development of this new transinstitutional collaboration. The first theme I would call democratising the institution. And this was, you know, when you do bring together, say, six or seven institutions under one umbrella, how do you make a decision? How do you govern? 
who gets the right to say what happens first and, and how, many, how much of the resources are distributed to X and not to Y. One of the interesting models of decentralised authority is, comes from, in fact, the writings of the leader of the PKK, the Kurdish liberation movement, Ossalam. He wrote a very interesting little book about confederations. And that very word, confederation, was the word that was adopted by Lenten National for their merger, for their partnership, for their alliance. And that word was chosen over the word network, which they saw was rather thin and ephemeral, whereas confederation not only spoke to something that was more enduring, but operated on a different political system of, uh, of, of unity in diversity. Because confederation acknowledges that in any, any, any kind of partnership, there will be dominant and minor parties. And the question is how you distribute the right to, for representation within that system. And so they've worked that, a model that is, enables the smaller parties to have an equal voice to the bigger parties and to distribute the power horizontally, not vertically. And that is an important principle. It also um, enabled them to rethink the principles of, of cooperation that were at the core of the European Union. So part of the success of the Lens Nationale in terms of fundraising from the European Union was to appeal to the idealistic streams that exist within the European notions of its own foundation and to call, and to take host, take European Union hostage to its own rules, take it hostage to its own ideals, and to stress, in other words, that if the European Union was built on the principles of cooperation, let's put this into practice at the level of culture. Because the European Union, as we all know, became as started as an economic enterprise, developed political systems, but has been very slow and, and in some ways uneven, if not counterproductive, in terms of its capacity to address the principles of diversity and unity in culture. So L'Internationale has worked on that principle of how mobility and, and collaboration can produce new forms of cultural production. And while it was obviously developed in a context where mobility was relatively common and taken for granted, it also operated in the mode that we are currently working more. Many of the junior and, and uh, colleagues in, in the institutions of international spend more time working on screen in collaborative models than they do face-to-face. -face. So in a sense, that prepared them for the scenario that we're all facing right now. But it also could only operate successfully if there was this redistribution of authority. If it wasn't just the seven directors making decisions that they were then being imposed by all the staff below them, but that there was this more, there were greater freedoms for those from at all levels of the organisations to initiate, to develop and collaborate independently and in parallel with the collaboration that existed by the directors. Because at some levels, it's quite easy for the directors 
to proceed with these kinds of collaborations because it was built on the principle of pre-existing trust networks. Most of the directors, in fact all of them, knew each other for a decade or two. And so they'd already developed a culture of, of support. What was important that that culture of support and trust and, and friendship was also shared and then spawned by the multitude of people that worked within and alongside these kinds of institutions. So the, key, the second key term after de democratizing is instituting the commons. That would require a different sense, not just of the, of the curators and artists and critics and publics to engage, but also to see themselves as, as they like to be called in Lentonish, as constituents, not as audiences or as participants or as producers, but as constituents, people who can shape and take agency for the institutions that they work with and across. And this idea of the constituents goes back also to this idea of the undercommons, people who need to learn the rules of the games or operate according to other rules, and, and therefore there must be a combination or in fact a collision of different rules for engagement. And I think this uh, uh, system of instituting the commons is not an easy um, platform to operate on. It doesn't presuppose a seamless environment. In fact, it often encounters profound um, obstacles, limitations, gaps, and, and mistranslations. It can produce enormous tension and frustration and requires infinite almost saint-like forms of virtue and, pa and patience. But nevertheless, it's, it's without this, real engagement and real interaction will not be possible. So this translocal um, perspective that needs to be formed in these um, collaborative um, processes are essential if we are to develop a perspective that takes the global seriously and also can interact with its own local, or interacting with people who are literally within our five kilometer radius. And by taking the global serious is an important element because in the context of the decolonial, that global is, is a profound challenge to many of the systems by which the art world has operated. The common way in which and um, many institutions still operate, is the idea of the curator at large as a surveyor of diversity. So that the curator can go out into the foreign landscapes, go out into different fields, select what is best, bring it, for the, bring it back home for the rest to see and admire. But that presupposes a capacity for vision and, and understanding and relating and then formulating a coherent narrative that makes sense of the diversity of the world out there. Now, it also presupposes a perspective and set of categories that were universalizable. Increasingly, those categories and that perspective have been brought into critique. And the decolonial movement in, in the art begins with that challenge of those categories upon which the aesthetic was based on and that perspective with which the curator or the critic or the artist saw the world. 
And in re instead of just imposing those old categories that were based on these universalizable capacities, there's increasing emphasis on the necessity for relationship building. The decolonial is a dialogical strategy in the first instance. It's based on the assumption that in order to get beyond the Western oculocentric viewpoints, we need to be open to dialogues with others and capable of listening to others and willing to address the gaps and limitations of our own vocabularies and systems and perspectives. If that begins, or if that is possible, then the possibilities of bridging those differences is, is something that we start to make. And it's crucial that, that when I did the interviews with the museum directors and curators, the word bridging kept coming up over and over again. It became a key, con a key term for thinking about how um, the, this construction of what we often describe as a pluriversal perspective is only possible if we start to bridge different roles and bridge different capacities together. Now, let me move towards my conclusion and also underline that some of these principles of democratization, instituting the commons, of decolonializing our perspectives have been radically challenged in this context of COVID. Because many of these principles not only took for granted what I described in terms of mobility, but were also directed towards a face-to-face -to -face kind of encounter with the other and with, with neighbours and with strangers in our own communities. In other words, we took for granted that art was generated by mobility and oriented towards conviviality. That capacity for conviviality has been, as we all know, radically shredded and distanced and, and veiled and masked and so on and so forth. Instead of conviviality and mobility, we are increasingly living in a culture of Zoom. And, and in a strange way, Zoom culture has been the wet dream of neoliberalism. It has enabled neoliberalism and neo-nationalism to come together in ways that were previously unforeseen. Every institution that I know, every major institution, including the universities that I work in, have captured this opportunity to centralize power as they've also decentralized production. This is the perfect dynamic for neo-nationalism, which has said we need to recontrol our borders but at the same time to outsource our work. So we all now have uh, slogans that we dread, which are increasingly underlying the, underlining the privatization of labor. Work from home now means living at work and that you are all in isolation all the time. Now this has profound challenges, not just on the individual level, but as for the institutions of art. What does it mean to be a spectator of art when, you're when your conditions of spectatorship are via screens? What sort of relations 
can we build with others when those relations are increasingly mediated by new technologies? So these issues of spectatorship and conviviality really, I think, challenge many of the fundamental principles of what is art. This has also been a focus for some time for L'Internationale. And one of the theorists that they were inspired by was Jacques Rancière. And he um, talked a great deal, as we all know, about the conditions of spectatorship. But in a more recent piece, he also talked about the function of art. And he argued that the function of art, of course, is not to mirror the world. It is not even to make a model for the world. But it is to en enable communication with life. This idea of art as the enabler of communication with life produces an interesting um, conjunction of the old binary between art and life and how art is life when it is a communication system. Another theorist that Lane's National have drawn on is Stephen Wright, who's taken this idea, I think, one step further, this idea of what is the relationship between art as communication and art as life. And because while Rancière's work is heavily focused on, on the early modern writer, artists, Wright turns it more towards contemporary figures where spectatorship is less important and usership is central. So how art is used in everyday life becomes central. Artists like Tanya Bruguera, of course, are at the centre of this kind of um, thinking. But also, I think, collectives like the collective Ruan Grupa, who are now directing the next documenta and who have flipped the narrative of this by saying that it's not what we will do for documenta, but how we will bring documenta into the life world of collectives like Ruan Grupa, which is an important reversal, both in the colonial and in the aesthetic category. But what they're also saying is that the point of the relationship between art and life is not to make models, but to make art on the same scale as life. It's a one-to-one -one correlation with these things. And this produces, I think, a radical rethinking of the function and representational dimensions of art and, and its place in our everyday life and how we can now find new capacities to hang out together whether it's on Zoom or in other ways. So, in conclusion, let me um, recall another um, moment in, that was formative in my own development. Max referred to my first book, Modernity is Exile, which was focused on the writings of John Berger. Before I began that book, I remember reading an interview that John Berger had done with the Australian Marxist Humphrey McQueen and Humphrey McQueen asked John Berger about the pedagogy of teaching. And John replied by saying, the most important thing a teacher must do is to put forward a position. Because the worst thing a teacher can do to a student is to allow them to wallow. By putting forward a position, the teacher is not necessarily demanding that the student mimic that position, but rather that the student has something to react against. And by reacting against, they may accept or reject or adjust that position. That modification 
produces a form of internalization and creation that is essential. And that interplay between the student and the teacher is very important to the way we also think about the decolonial challenges. Because the crucial role for our engagement with others is not that we survey their landscape, objectively produce an overview of it, thereby claiming some intimate appreciation and capacity to objectively classify it and then produce new categories and narratives that can represent it. Rather, I would like to see that we have an interplay we are, where we are all epistemic partners with each other, in the same way that John described a partnership with the student as a process of internalization and adjustment. That partnership would produce new forms of knowledge whereby we are all complicit and responsible for the forms and shapes that we give to the world today. So on that note, I would like to say thank you very much for this invitation, and I look forward to hearing and, and, and being an, a partner in the conversation with Laura as well and Max. Nikos, thank you so much for that very beautiful um, presentation, which I think provides a, a wonderful platform for Laura. Um, instituting the Commons is not a seamless process, as you note, but there is you know, wonderful possibility in um, establishing new forms of ethics and aesthetics. And certainly, um, Laura is, is a, a curator and a writer who has indeed been very committed to creating a more engaged and equitable cultural sphere, but also a, an engaged and equitable civic sphere. So I think it's a, a wonderful opportunity to now um, welcome and introduce um, Laura, um, who is um, speaking um, on uh, interconnection, culture and care. Thank you, Laura. Thank you so much, Max. I am delighted to be here with all of you today, especially with my colleague Nikos. Um, look forward to our conversation um, in a few moments. I'd first like to start by acknowledging and paying respects to the Lenape people, past, present and future, who have been the stewards of the land from which I speak since time immemorial. I'm deeply grateful to be a beneficiary of this care and I'm committed to ensuring this history and present is respected and acknowledged now and into the future. I'd also like to provide a self-description for access. I'm a white woman in her late 40s with dark brown hair streaked with yellow, wearing a black and white graphic top and red lipstick. Today, I'll be talking about interconnection, culture, and care. I'll start with a quote from Hannah Arendt. She once said, we all grow up and inherit certain vocabulary. We then have got to examine this vocabulary. The widespread arrival of the COVID-19 virus to the United States in March 2020 brought a great deal into high relief. The primary, primary relationships in our collective lives were among these, as well as the ills of inequity that separate when, with an enormous and increasing gulf, those who are well and those who are sick, those who can work from home and those who cannot, those who can retreat and those who must venture forth, those who live and those who die. These realities are stark, unfair, and driven by late capitalism, white supremacy, colonialism, cis heteropatriarchy, and discrimination of every variety. 
they also belie the connectivity and interdependence inherent in the transnational world, an interdependence that the virus emergence onto the world scene has so dramatized. This period of the pandemic has wrought reckonings with inequities on many fronts, particularly in the fight for racial justice in the wake of the murders in the United States of too many black and brown people by police departments. The, victim, the activism of 2020 was a bright call for liberation and represents the first moment in my lifetime when I feel there is truly an opportunity to make the radical change our society so desperately needs. Can it lead to an excising of the beliefs and behaviors that are poisoned to a culture that is killing itself by perpetuating such egregious harm? Can society recover from the delirium of individualism to recognize the fundamental interconnectivity of humanity? Can cultural spaces, particularly museums, shift to accommodate and support this transformation and even provide models for its manifestation? In this moment of pandemic and uprisings, amidst the upending and disruption of nearly all aspects of daily life, the rules have heightened, have a heightened potential to be undone and redone. How and whether they will produce a more intense version of our current reality or a more just one is up for grabs. On good days, I think the latter is within grasp and on bad days, I see the shadowy persistent creep of the former. I'm certain that it will require our collective desire and creativity for society to become more equitable. And in early 2021, with the presidency of Joe Biden replacing that of Donald Trump, there is a palpable measure of relief that a government is in place that is actually functional. And yet so many centrist politics of reform are out of tune with the deep-seated change that is truly necessary. It will take vigilance to locate the new forms of white supremacy might take. It took many years for many people to see the ways in which the brutalities of Jim Crow were reinscribed within the criminal justice system in the U.S. In response to 2020's extraordinary and unrelenting expressions of protest and solidarity across the nation, some shifts took place quickly. The Minneapolis City Council announced plans to dismantle the city's police department and remake it. Various localities sought budget cuts to police departments, and New York State abolished the law that protected officers who had been subjected to disciplinary measures for misconduct from public scrutiny. Some of these represent profound shifts, and others are reactive forms that barely scratch the surface. And for what it's worth, protests even inspired Warren Canders, former board member of the Whitney Museum of American Art, who resigned under pressure from artists and activists to divest his company, which is actually called Safari Land, from, tear, from its tear gas division. His tear gas was used at the border and in Ferguson before it was deployed again in 2020 against Black Lives Matter protesters. While there seems to be a deossification underway, we must remain vigilant. Reform is often a veil for new manifestations of the status quo, and as evidenced in the January 6th attacks on the Capitol, the ideologies of hate and exclusion run deep and violent. Ensuring that profound change is realized is the call to action, and further, that any shifts are derailed from evolving into yet new dehumanizing forms. Further, the changes being demanded from institutions of all kinds must be heard and implemented, not merely as surface level reforms, but must be made manifest within institutional structures and operations with accountability and transparency. 
I have not slept soundly since the health crisis began. While daytime is devoted to everything from supporting my son's schooling to laundry and housework to museum problem solving and Zoom meetings, midnight to 3 a.m. is anxiety's witching hour. My friend, artist, healer, and performer Wendell Cooper works with a visualization that is one of the few things that helps clear my flighty mind towards sleep. And it goes something like this. Feel free to close your eyes. Imagine an emotion or a sensibility that you would like to embody, like peace or calm or joy. Imagine that sensibility as a fine gold mist filling the room, glittering in the sunlight. Breathe deeply, inviting this vapor into your lungs to permeate your body. Imagine it traveling through your sinuses and into the flesh of your cheeks and bones of your jaw, up into the spaces between your skull and brain, down your throat and neck into your chest and belly, traversing your collarbones over the curve of your shoulders, into your arms and elbow joints, wrists and fingers, permeating not only muscles and tendons, but other soft tissue and your very bones. The shimmering mist flows down your back in a cascade over your hips, coiling into your pelvis. It grows into your knees, legs and eddies into your feet and toes and you are filled through the breath and the vapor with the, with the attribute you desired. It is you. This meditation usually brings sleep and rest to my addled brain and nervous system. I also recognize with horror the ways in which it mirrors viral transmission, at least to my medically untrained self. The breath essential to life also brings COVID into our bodies. The lungs are often the site. It hits hardest, wrecking havoc for weeks and perhaps permanently. If we only could stop breathing, we could stop the spread. The breath of life then, no matter what or where we live or how, is undoubtedly what connects us. And the pandemic allows us to see how the, necess the necessity of breath, in fact, makes us profoundly interdependent. My exhale becomes your inhale and vice versa. Yet all breath and all life does not matter equally on this planet. And all of our society reflects this reality, including our cultural spaces and museums. Given the access and power I have within the cultural realm, this is my chosen space to make change with the aspiration that these efforts might not, might, might not only take root, but also might provide a model for the ways in which we use such, cha which such change can occur on broader societal scales. While the body I inhabit with daily unself-awareness becomes vulnerable, or maybe I just see its vulnerability in greater focus, the strange textures and materials of what I am made of draw my focus. Early on, I saw an image of a scan of lungs infected with COVID, a miasma of deep purple signaling the intensity of damage to this essential tissue. Compared with a flu patient's lavender tinges and a completely healthy, not purple set of lungs, the infective pair were ravaged in deep, violet, insistent, and unabating. The color dangerously dense in some areas, threatening death and spread, these images have stuck in my brain, invading other thoughts. Breath is also what was robbed from George Floyd. He was pinned to the ground for an endless eight minutes and 46 seconds, while police officer Derek Chauvin's knee was on his neck in broad daylight, violently taking his life. I can't breathe is the refrain of horror that has been urgently uttered by black people as they are killed by police, as well as the victims of COVID-19. 
This is not the first time a black target of police brutality has made the exact statement as their life was cut short. Eric Gardner, George Floyd, and innumerable other black people have uttered, I can't breathe, among their final words. From the asphyxiations of lynchings in all its forms, historical and contemporary, black people have been subjected to this particular manifestation of the tyranny of white supremacy for an excruciating period. I can't breathe is a rallying cry in protests and on signs calling for justice. Further, the demographics of COVID victims relatedly replicate the injustice of the of, in the disproportional death of black people from the disease. Breath, one of the most basic involuntary functions of the human body to keep it alive is being taken away from black people at unconscionable rates. Police action across the United States and the structural circumstances that lead to disproportionately high numbers of black death due to COVID-19 tell us that it doesn't matter. And yet it does, black lives matter. Considering breath and the life it gives is central to confronting both COVID and the ideologies of white supremacy. Emanuele Cocha's The Life of Plants proposes a set of ideas that break down individualism that make contemporary society so myopically unjust and untethered to the realities of interconnectivity. Cocha's contemplation of the ways in which leaves and roots of plants create an atmosphere that is life, for me, dovetails with the thinking about interdependence and the ways in which cultural spaces must be reimagined. Culture is, by definition, a collective enterprise. Museums are only buildings without people, who, without the people who open the doors, who care for the art, who make exhibitions, who clean the toilets. Kocha's starting point is that life is completely dependent on the existence of other living beings. He writes, immersion is first of all an action of mutual compenetration between subject and environment, body and space, life and medium. It is impossible to distinguish them physically and spatially, for there to be immersion, subject and environment have to actively penetrate each other. Otherwise, one would speak simply of juxtapositions or contiguity between bodies touching at their extremities. Subject and environment act on each other and define themselves, starting from this reciprocal action. Thus, to act and to be acted upon are formally indistinguishable. The mission of Kocha's book is to share is to shake readers into seeing this interconnectivity and to understand the role of the leaf, the root, and frankly, every living thing outside of our narcissistic human selves as necessary for breath and life. He presents an arc of argumentation about the plant, plants, leaves, air, roots, flowers, and sex to help reveal the interdependence that life on earth requires. It fundamentally decenters the anthropogenic and its conception of planetary function. It seems obvious on some levels, but these realities go against the grain of capitalist, cis-heteronormative, white supremacist, ableist, patriarchal ideology so intensively that I believe that they are profoundly useful in this moment. They form a material alternative to the cult of the individual, demonstrating that symbiosis is crucial to all life. Plants make our world possible and reliance on one another, on flora and fauna alike. What we each choose to do or not to do is fundamental to survival and also to the potential to, tr to thrive. And this interconnection gives rise to questions of care and whether we are invested in one another's survival 
and our potential to thrive enough to, for example, wear a mask during a global pandemic or protest injustice or make change in the spheres in which we have power and influence or to think about presenting culture differently to make museums better for more people. Protests, whether they are aimed at injustices within cultural spaces or in society at large, are forms of radical care. They are expressions of, deep, of a deep desire to be together differently, to care for one another in other ways. In the context of the cultural institution, calls for change, whether by external protesters or calls for unionization, anti-racism work, or other forms, require deep listening and engagement. This is what constitutes care. And the inequities of cultural space are such perfect mirrors of society that enacting this, what this care looks like in museums might actually help envision how it could travel beyond cultural spaces into the larger culture itself. As a starting point, the imaginary of the museum must change. Rather than buildings with star individual directors and curators making magic happen, museums function far more like ne networks of interrelation that Kocha describes in his book. Acknowledging the numbers of people who make museums possible requires a different view on what these institutions must care for. They must care for their people, those who make it work, those who those who care for audiences and art, those whose expertise, whether it be how to conserve an artwork or how to keep the gallery safe and clean, must be valued. They also must care for the people who comprise the museum's publics. This care extends far beyond the traditional meaning ascribed to curatorial work. Curare, after all, is the Latin root for this term, and it means care, to care for. This is what care looks like within cultural space. Shifting the imaginary of the museum to this polyphonic view requires many things, including redistributing power and agency. In this frame, art workers can exert their desires for how the institution might function better, and also for it, as not only for its workers, but for its publics as well. As ever, Culture has an enormous role to play in both undoing its own biases that perpetuate conditions of inequity and also to create space for repair, for the undoing many lifetimes of harm. Museums tell stories via the art they display through the lens of their own foundational realities, which are decidedly not neutral. They speak to the ways in which wealth is accumulated and reflect that art has long been acquired in the aftermath of accruing wealth. They speak to the ways in which nations have amassed power and put it on display in a very material sense through museums. They speak of nation building, conquest, and colonialism. They fundamentally speak to and of power. The power of art, its social and political power, its financial power, and its power to shift our notions of history and present. As institutions within society, museums are a reflection of the structures we encounter every day. They bear the same scars of division and collectivity, joy and pain, power and powerlessness, creativity and oppression that the larger society bears. It is therefore useful to look deeply at cultural spaces and identify the ways in which they might be more equitable, the ways that they can engage audiences across racial, economic, social, cultural, linguistic, and ideological difference more intentionally than they do today. While many statements have been issued by museums and cultural institutions across the US and indeed around the globe, expressing solidarities with the movement for black lives, this can only be a starting point or a crumb of thinking that maps to commitments large and small.
It is the replication of the systems of white supremacy within culture's very structures that is the core of the problem with any diversity, equity, and inclusion initiative, as they're called in the States. A problematic that I hope is made more visible by the many important critiques of how cultural institutions have approached this moment, particularly those led by white people, however honorable their intentions. Without recognizing that neutrality within culture is impossible and undoing the structures that surround and protect this mythology by remaking internal operations, governance, and programming of museums and cultural spaces, we cannot make change. Where white people lead institutions, there is a profound need for self-education and personal work. This can happen in tandem with museum activities and oftentimes must happen in parallel to ongoing work, but the actual change within the institution cannot happen without this commitment. In fact, curator, historian, and art historian Latanya Autry initiated a profound, profoundly expansive list of resources on racial justice in museums that has been augmented by many others along the way. It's her, available on her website, artmatters.com. Further, organizations are not monolithic. There are many different registers of social and political engagement among, among staff, and we must recognize this and commit to developing common languages for addressing inequity and how it materializes specifically within museum structures. While this isn't an easy needle to thread, it's deeply necessary. The centering of whiteness needs to be addressed with transparency to reveal how neutrality is in fact a veil for elevating whiteness to the exclusion and marginalization of all else even when the all else is the majority of the world. Artist and educator Lisey Raskin has been deeply engaged in anti-racist work for years, including her ambitious initiation of an anti-racist and harm reduction pedagogy at the Rhode Island School of Design, where she serves as head of the sculpture department. Recently, she's been posting highly pointed and useful videos on Instagram. Her handle is at Lisey Raskin. These are focused on white behavior and assumptions. While the videos and the resources she shares pull no punches, her words are laced with care. She knows how important it is to do the work, the white work of meeting other white people where they are. The point is to build resiliency in white responses to the realities of complicity. It's also necessary to create space where the shame of white complicity is confronted with clarity and then to radicalize the ways in which white people engage with their networks to actively combat anti-blackness and promote nonviolent communication. While there has been evidence of intercultural and transracial solidarity in the protests and movements to make change, I've also witnessed self-preserving apathy that is deeply disappointing among white allies. The refusal to act by white people in many cases among the most privileged is unacceptable. Some don't care, others care too much about how they are perceived. They fear making mistakes more than they care about making change. This moment calls upon white people to use their unearned privileges to make big efforts, to become vulnerable, to make mistakes and be accountable for them, to apologize without expecting forgiveness and to make amends. If white people don't do this, we are not trying hard enough to make things different. This is how care can be enacted, by using positions of power and agency to do something about injustice. It is also about an ability for leadership to be humble, to lead from behind, especially when that leadership is overwhelmingly white, as it so often is inside of museums. This means holding space for tough conversations, deeply listening to critique from both internal and external sources, to making commitments, 
intellectual, financial, and personal to do deep work, stepping back to foreground others. Doing this, as someone who has been in this very position, is a dance, a complicated one. The demands on successful, successful leadership are often directly in opposition to these methodologies. However, if the possibility of the polyphonic cultural space is to be made manifest, it must be done with transparency and care, openness and humility. Starting points include making proposals open to staff and boards for engagement undefensively, but with real research and care behind it, giving space and time for the contemplation of this work rather than checking a to-do list and inviting outside facilitation while recognizing the resources embedded within the organization, and perhaps above all else, radically slowing down taking more time to do everything, aids in not only providing space for reflection and deeper consideration, but also for engaging more people in the conversation and decision-making in the first place. How to map a plan to confront these endemic social ills within the space of culture is not a question simply answered. Surely it's obvious that if we hope to have a chance at a broader societal shift, that the spaces that center society's art and creative output must be is an essential place to start and to act, and that this work must be done collectively with a spirit, within a spirit and function of care, vulnerability, exchange, and interrelation. Ensuring the financial viability and health and safety of staff and publics, working with boards to ensure ongoing support both financially and from a governance perspective, responding programmatically to the shifting ground beneath our feet. Of course, all of these things are priorities, but this moment is also ripe for the creation of a blueprint, a roadmap to ensure museums and cultural institutions function more equitably, recognizing that the process is the point and that and that it is the journey that will make us better, not arriving at a destination that in any case is a fiction. This is what makes the initiation of this work or a renewed commitment to its principles essential. My greatest learning over these last few years of research and writing on museums and the myth of neutrality alongside working my way through some very big feelings of my own is that the single most important thing is to begin, to begin by looking inward to accept vulnerability and accountability and what might emerge from the process. This is a journey that requires reading, reflecting, watching videos and films, documentaries, and talking and sharing with friends and strangers alike, whether through a screen or in real life, Hopefully soon we'll be able to be back together again in some way. The injustices being confronted have been perpetuated for far too long to put off taking actions institutionally that lay within reach while this individual interior work is accomplished. It's never gonna be perfect work, but imperfections can be opportunities too. They can create spaces within which, within which to grow and to learn by being willing to sit in the spaces of discomfort and accountability. The inequities reflected in our systems of culture have been reinscribed for centuries alongside ideologies of white supremacy, capitalism, colonialism, and cis-heteropatriarchy. They can be undone collectively with intention and with a fearlessness that comes from conviction and commitment, but also with an abundance of love. And it is with love that museums might be undone and redone to engender truly in inclusive cultural spaces, spaces that rely less on oppression and exclusion to declare their excellence, and ones that rather extend with care, generosity, and action spaces for contemplation and connection. And maybe then some of the methodologies of this shift can spread throughout our ailing societies. 
perhaps an undone and redone cultural space can permeate other structures that perpetuate injustice. Can we dream this dream? Thanks. Laura, thank you very much for that um, wonderful paper. Um, and I think which is beautifully brings us back to questions of care and generosity and reciprocity and hospitality also that Nikos outlined. So I think it's a very um, opportune uh, moment to bring you both into dialogue. And also I think um, I appreciated your engagement with the present moment and identifying opportunities for agency within the present moment, which is so urgent and uh, pressing. Um, so thank you both again. Um, and Nikos, you mentioned earlier on that um, museums are not big or diverse enough to address the complexity of the city or, or the polis perhaps even, you know, and um, Laura, you spoke about um, the idea of the polyphonic institution and deep listening. So I, I wonder whether perhaps, you know, you might reflect on those challenges. Um, and certainly Laura, at your, your role at Queen's, you had a very rich and sort of ethnically diverse multicultural community in your neighbourhood. And, and, you know, Nikos has spoken very much about the local and the neighbourhood and the five um, kilometre radius and how one engages with that, with those constituents. And perhaps, you know, you might both reflect on that idea of actually the, the polyphonic museum and what opportunities uh, and challenges present themselves there. Yeah, maybe I'll start just um, because there's a, you know, when Nikos was talking about the local and the transnational, I, I just, um, there's something I always said when I was working at the Queen's Museum that, you know, we were kind of connecting that hyper-localism with the transnational in ways that were really concrete and not abstract at all. Because given the fact that so many people in the direct vicinity of the museum were actually, you know, WhatsApping or Skyping or whatever, texting, friends and family um, back home, wherever that was, which was literally, you know, everywhere around the planet at any given moment, you know, there was this kind of very intimate connection with, um, with what was happening um, in various places. And it was not, um, it was not the international networked global financial centers necessarily, right? It's It wasn't that type of global network. It was a very different one, a very intimate one, a very personal one. And I think, you know, one of the really kind of brilliant, wonderful things that my predecessor, Tom Finkelpearl, um, did at the Queen's Museum was to be the first museum in the United States to actually have community organizers enlisted on staff, which um, was transformative, really, because it was re it, it became about not, you know, doing outreach, not going out into the into the neighborhood to bring people back to the museum, but rather, and this I think was like something that I was felt very strongly about was to figure out how to leverage the resources of the museum to be more valuable to the communities that directly surrounded it. Um, and so that played out in a number of different ways. I mean, one of the ways that that played out was immediately after the election of Donald Trump, because um, there was so much fear. There was so much fear, given the fact that the the museum is, you know, smack dab in one of the most diverse 
uh, boroughs, uh, land land masses, and all of you know the on the planet. Um, Three hundred and sixty five different languages are spoken, and some of those languages are only spoken in Queens at this point because they're extinct elsewhere. So you know it's an exceedingly diverse uh, universe of people who live there, but fear was just huge, and you know so we tried to support um, organizations that were providing information just like know your rights kind of stuff, um, you know, coordinating with those or, you know, nonprofit organizations like Make the Road and other immigrant rights groups to make sure that people knew that even though we were a museum that looked quite official in a pretty grand building that was owned by the city, that that affiliation with the state didn't prevent us from, you know, interacting in a much more modest and personal way with the people who we, with whom we'd collaborated and partnered for, you know, at that point, more than a decade and a half. So, you know, that kind of fostering that intimacy that only could happen through a community organizing effort, as opposed to just recruitment or outreach, you know, as it's so you often called, there was a reciprocity there and, uh, you know, a generosity there that I hope that, that that was legible to some people. I mean, I'm not claiming that it was, you know, universal in any sense, but but I think it also gave us a better sense of who who needed what. And, you know, and, and part of that was also because our staff was of that, you know, demographic as well, you know. Um, when when Trump was elected, it was pretty horrifying because I had a number of people who were, who had their status through um, through DACA, which was the the Obama era um, executive order that allowed people who were born in the United States, I mean, who were brought to the United States without documentation as children, allowed them to have. Um, documents. And so, you know, that was a temporary solution that Obama came up with because Congress wouldn't authorize it. But I had people on my staff who I was like, look, renew, renew your DACA immediately. <laughs> like, you know, I'll do whatever I can to help you because, you know, there was so much fear. So, yes. Nikos, perhaps, I mean, would you like to reflect upon that? I know that we've, we've spoken before about, um, you know, whether it be with teaching or in curatorial modes, um, not only accommodating other points of view, but welcoming and providing a platform for other points of view, you know, within the academy or within the museum. It is, as you said, it's a dialogic process, but it's also an iterative process. And you spoke about institutions having to amend their um, program accordingly. It's true because um, no institution is big enough to even address its own locale. You know, the locale is already global in in every in every sense of the word, and and that diversity requires new modes of of relation building. And um, <clears throat> I think um, already Laura has spoken very eloquently both about the personal and the institutional responsibilities that 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 ensue from that. And in L'Internationale, in that group, they've had a history of trying to work through different models. And one of the early experiments was was a flawed one, in fact, um, when Muka in Antwerp invited the local Algerian community to curate a show. It was very interesting that the first response they got from members of the Algerian community is that you're not inviting us as, as strangers. We already own you. 
Now, that's a fantastic... They were a little bit taken aback by the um, assertiveness and the... Well, it's not even assertiveness. The the actual sense of entitlement that an immigrant diaspora community had in terms of their own institutional um, responsibilities. And I think that was a beautiful moment in terms of the wake-up calls that um, um, power structures have to face. And similarly, when MACBAR in Barcelona um, pioneered their incredibly important um, experiments with working with anarchist groups, which are literally next door, because MACBAR is in a, in a little piazza, plaza, and in the side streets, there's lots of little organisations that were involved in different kinds of political and autonomous and, and radical agendas. And and to their credit, MACBAR said, why are we operating as if we don't know our neighbours? Why don't we open up our neighbor, uh, ourselves to our neighbours and work collaboratively with them. And so for, for an enormously dynamic and radical period that this relationship um, or this openness really challenged the institutional foundations and really confronted the curators in terms of their time that they thought a project should take, their capacity to share resources, to make the building open at certain um, durations and 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 rhythms, um, and also how resources were used, etc. So many of these assumptions about what are the correct procedures, what's the sort of the span at which a project will require, the number of voices that are necessary before a decision is made, that really extends and complicates the order with which things are achieved by, and. It led to fantastic innovations, but also um, real tensions and blockages and and frustrations. All that should be considered as normal rather than a problem. And that is the also part of the learning curve that we have to uh, embrace. What is the normal part of deliberation? What's the normal part of investigation and dialogue and and, and, and development? And I think the really interesting um, push that is happening now in 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 an organisation like Le International is actually coming from Istanbul, from a, a museum called Salt, which actually is like a private initiative. It was supported by a bank, in fact. It's not dependent on state resources. It's not. Uh, it's philanthropic at one level, but they have set themselves up primarily as as in response to the myriad of initiatives that exist within the city. And so when you enter Salt, the first thing you see is a library. You don't go in through the book, the gift shop or in through the, the gallery. You go in through a library because they recognise that one of the things that was most urgent in that city was access to information. Then it can be places of of display or places of, of, of assembly. But the other thing that they have also built is that the necessity for the organization's own um, platform to be led by all the different kinds of constituent groups that they are embedded and surrounded by. So whether it's the Geki Park initiatives or a range of other um, political projects, SALT has been sort of embedded in all sorts of of those kinds of um, local kinds of uh, networks, which in fact 
are often translocal and transnational and, and collaborative in, in their making. So what this polyphonic and complex polis um, agenda speaks to is the iterative, as you said, Max, and polyphonic, as you said, Laura, but it also speaks to a different sense of duration. And, and that, I think, is incredibly important. And Laura ended with this point about appreciating um, slowness. And this would go back to also our understanding of governance and our expectations of, of delivery, because in some ways uh, we can't control who see who um, and when um, agency is actually being manifest. Who and when, because agency is not continuous all the time. It has its own interruptions and rhythms. And I, I also would li like us to reflect a little bit about the need to think about institutions as permeable um, spaces. And the institutions that I think are most adept for that are, in fact, ones which have acknowledged or by default are uh, constructed out of permeability. And so we can come back to this point because um, in um, Laura's account of the ecology of the life form, permeability was the principle upon which everything else follows. And permeability is in some sense acknowledging but working beyond the classical ways in which we understand bodies. Our cellular structure, our atoms, our units, which are of course bodily, but also social, political, economic. We think of little cells in which the monastic condition and the artistic experimentation was organized around. We think of units for production and so, and, and so on, and regions for distribution, etc. But these itemized and atomized and bounded forms are of course necessary, but they, if they remain bounded, they func dis become dysfunctional. The whole point of life is flow, of communication. And without permeability, there is no life form. And that is essential to our understanding. So this paradox between the bounded and the open needs to be really put forward into the way in which we understand culture. And I really want to pick up Laura's point on that. Because in, 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 in Melbourne, for instance, Federation Square, which is an open, semi-open space, is where many communities gather to produce both social, cultural and artistic projects. And what happens there is that as many people are there, there are millions more who are part because everybody is filming and, and, and disseminating their experience at the same time. And that flow and that permeability between the physical and the virtual is an important new dimension, I think, for understanding both the polis and the polyphonic. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Nikos. And I, you know, I loved um, when you were talking about the one-to-one -one correlation between art and life, because in a way, somehow what's happened by the, in, the, the, the institutionalizing of art in a in buildings and museums that has created this kind of myth that they're separate, <laughs> you know, and art and life. I mean, 
how is a meal not an artwork, you know, sharing a meal with friends, you know, I think, or family or whatever, you know, I, I, I think the, there are very many myth, mythologies of that are founded in a lot of these big ideologies that are in fact, global and influencing everyone around the globe's um, understanding of their realities. And unfortunately, that too must be undone. But I do think this moment lends itself to that. And so, you know, this kind of, I mean, I sort of nodded to it in my um, in my paper, but I, you know, I talk about this more fully in my book about the kind of like star director or star curators, you know, these kinds of the ways that success is viewed, like whether an institution is successful or a museum director is successful, these things are highly problematic, the ways that they've been set up, because they're obviously founded in in late capitalism and neoliberalism. And, and, and what they do is that they rob the museum of its actual collective reality. Right. Um, and also, you know, this these categorizations that are part of the imperial project of, you know, sort of separating everything into these like basic units when in fact, yes, there is high permeability and there should be. And the hierarchies that are created amongst these spaces, like you were talking about, Nikos, whether it's production or curatorial work or education work, you know, like in the museum, curatorial is up here and like the classical museum, I should say, you know, curatorial is up here and everybody else is somewhere below, you know, whereas, you know, in a in a different kind of model where you have this permeability that's really robust and, and polyphonic, you know, in that sense, um, you don't have that same hierarchy. And it's something that I've actually tried to do quite actively is to reformulate the ways in which departments within the museum function. And like, how, you know, if education and, and, and um, if education and curatorial are working, you know, in a, in parallel uh, or actually in an integrated way rather than in parallel um, and rather than in a, in a hierarchical relationship, what does that produce, you know, where public programs is also in that same relationship or finance for that matter. And this is where, you know, I think, you know, it's quite, I mean, on one hand, it's like quite easy to, 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 you know, I, I, I'm really committed to representation. I think it's really important. And so when you have, you know, what's in your galleries and who's on the walls and who's, you know, represented is absolutely really important. But if you stop there, you're really, you know, falling short because it's really about the structures that undergird the, um, the 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 actual institution. So whether that's your governance structure, your staffing structure, your financial structures, all of these things, as you point out, are like really, really essential. You know, we've got to be re-examining all of that. And I think you know there, are, and which is why I look at you know, the kind of protest as a radical form of care because if people didn't protest, they did they don't care. I mean, if nobody cares they're not going to bother to protest and so one should listen to those people <laughs> you know if we occupy and if if we're in in within institutions you know we should be grateful for the folks who are pointing out you know these are the flaws and you know we may not agree on how to get to the other side of the hill but you know we at least can have a conversation about it and i think that where museums especially in in the united states as i've seen over the last several years have kind of uh, you know, when they when they go deep into that 
you know, corporate mode of uh, PR land where, you know, everything becomes like nobody's allowed to talk to anyone. It just, you know, it just becomes this completely closed circuit that actually doesn't make any sense. You know, I mean, I, I, I look back at some of the so-called controversies that I kind of unpack in my book and, you know, I think to myself, well, you know, um, if the Dana Schutz painting at the Whitney is at the Whitney Biennial, if the furor around that had been kind of discussed by the staff publicly at the Whitney in some way, you know, if that had been, if it had been revealed that the Whitney wasn't this monolithic thing, but there are all these brilliant, various, independently minded people who have all kinds of different opinions, would that not have potentially been a better outcome, you know, <laughs> and provided the public with a much more nuanced understanding of what, how rich an institution like that is, you know, and that failure, I think, is like a failure to believe in failure in a way, you know, <laughs> like we should be failing according to the rules of late capitalism, you know, because late capitalism is failing. <laughs> Everyone. I entirely agree with you. Um, and. And um, this idea of, of failing is so important to fail better. You know, how do we learn? Science only learns from failure. Um, similarly, art has to fail to learn and, and produce. But you, you use a beautiful phrase at the beginning of your talk about the delirium of individualism. And I really want to unpack that phrase in terms of how I heard it, because I agree with you. Um, the delirium of individualism is the is the kernel of capitalism, and because it is, as you say, it, it's the robbing of the collective, it's the stripping down of all that is collective, so that it can be funneled, concentrated, and distilled into so-called one subject. But that becomes that subject becomes an object, and thereby is commodifiable. That's right. brand or whatever and and yeah and I, you lose the and you lose the um you basically have that that object that commodifiable object absorbing the labor of very many people exactly the horizon becomes reduced to a focal point and and what the horizon contains is possibility and what the point contains is power and and that I think is um, it's it's attractive to capital, but let's think about the consequence of that process of funneling. It has produced a culture of anxiety, of competitiveness, supposedly to produce more and more, and to innovate. But it also, as we as you very eloquently and very touchingly outlined, especially during COVID, it undermined the capacity for individuals to feel any level of satisfaction between their bodies, their communities, their labor and their identity. What I think COVID did for many people, myself included, was to sharpen the cleavages that are already there and to expose the ruptures between your body and your community because some of our bodies were not just embedded in one community but suddenly lost the other the access points to all the other communities, our relationship to our labor and the rewards to it were, were, in, were 
experiencing funneling in my, in my notion. And so as a consequence, anxiety levels went through the roof and, and people had to re, re, um, recourse and, and take up meditation in the way exactly as you described it. And that, uh, and recognition of the role of breath in terms of in, inducing some element of personal tranquility was essential. But as you pointed out, breath at that point was also laced with, with um, disease and laced with political oppression. And so we now have to think of breath, not just as individual care, but as collective care. And so conducting yourself in the context of care is not just retreating in a monastic way of thinking about my breath. It's about thinking about breath as world soul, which is what the Greek word implies and is based on. Etymology for breath includes soul. That's right. And so breath now has to include how we all breathe together. To me, the, this, the experience of the last year has been one of, you know, revealing these really, as you say, kind of sharp cleavages, um, you know, within, within uh, the existing landscape. Um, but I also, I also think there is great possibility in it because of the immense amounts of activism that's taken shape, the amount of um, civic and social and political engagement that's emerged, um, at least here in the United States has been quite staggering. I mean, it, it's really given me hope in a way that I, I haven't felt it. Um, and even to the extent that certain things have become part of our national discourse in a way, like debt, I mean, debt abolition. Mm -hmm. Debt abolition as a, as a subject of national discourse. I mean, that's insane that that's actually like a conversation in the United States. Um, so there, there's, re there's reason, I mean, I, I think that the kind of highlighting of this um, crisis that we're in truly, and, and it's not like a new crisis exactly, but it's been amplified by the current one. And one of the things that I think is really important about culture's role in all of this is, as you were saying, because during your talk, that you know, the, the art is the place where the experiments can happen, where this kind of, um, you know, where, where constituents can come together um, to kind of test and, and understand the collision of values, of ideas, of, um, of having like, um, of, uh, of really contending with um, the discomfort of not having of diversity, the, the discomforts of what diver real diversity is, which is a diversity of life experience, right? Um, and so, you know, when, um, when, when you talk about right and Ranciere, you know, the, the ways that art has transformed in certain quarters, you know, with Tanya Bruguera, Rick Lowe, Jana Van Hesvik, Jonas Stahl, like all of these artists who are, taking on this kind of notion of, you know, the decolonial as, as dialogical, um, you know, 
that's the space where things get really messy in a really good way, you know, <laughs> and to me get funky and interesting. And which destabilizes the cultural institution because as it has classically been understood because it's not necessarily, um, you know, a commodifiable object that's being preserved in this space, which is why I like, I really love the word curator, um, you know, but I find it's, it's completely gotten, it's gone off the rails because you can curate shoes now. I mean, you know, like, I, I, I mean, you can curate a website. I don't even know what that means, but in any case, but, but curare, this idea of caring for, you know, it, it makes the museum a different kind of space if you actually imagine caring for the people who make the museum function. Um, and that's why like the unionization conversation, it's not just, and, and the, the creative art piece gets spread around a little bit more. It's not just funneled through one group of people who stand over here in the organization. And I think that that's where this kind of, um, this kind of creative process, artistic process, uh, you know, practicing the decolonial as dialogical, where that actually reveals itself as being highly, um, highly uh, rich, you know, very, varied, very, providing the kind of, that uh, the hummus, the, you know, the earth, the, the, the rich earth for, um, for the, the change to take place actually. And, and for it not to always be kumbaya and like comfortable and whatever, like we're, we're creating spaces, we're seeking to create space or I'm seeking to create spaces mm -hmm. that actually cultivate that discomfort because I think that we require it, you know, because otherwise, you know, th there may be a point where, you know, for, for, for there to be the conversation, I have to leave the room and that's okay. Or like, I have to not participate in some way, you know, but that's good, you know, I, I should leave the room, you know. Laura and Nicholas, I think that's actually a very, um, I think both profound, constructive and really productive way to, to wrap up. I think making amends and, um, you know, taking responsibility and the importance indeed of confronting the museum's own biases and histories, but the idea of remaking um, the museum and remaking culture and perhaps taking up your point, Laura, of the role of the curator, you know, in caring, not so much for cultural objects or for collections, but for cultural practice and indeed the sort of situation and constitution of the community itself is the work to, still to be done. Nikos and Laura, I'd like to really thank you both so much for that really um, wonderful discussion and um, provocative discussion and which I think gives us such a wonderful platform to continue this series um, on uh, institutional um, practices, curatorial practices, but also how they do impact more widely um, in the construction of the commons. And uh, yeah, once again, thank you so, so much both. Thank you, Thank you so much, Max. Thank you, Nikos. It was such a pleasure. pleasure. To be here. I hope we get a chance to do so in real life. Okay. <laughs>